Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Tonight, move over, Bigfoot. Piss off, Mothman. I'm going to talk about a couple of cryptids that maybe you haven't heard of from Santa Paula, California, and Bladenboro, North Carolina. All that and more on Small Town Secrets. Welcome to episode four of season six of the show. Uh, very quickly approaching the middle of the season will be the next episode. And uh, I'm glad to say that finally today, I think I've got everything planned out for the rest of the season. I know what all the episodes are going to be. And tonight, 
I thought I would just sit down uh, with one of my favorite resources, and that is Chasing American Monsters by Jason Offit. Uh, why do I love it so is because it is literally a book uh, organized by state that just takes you through uh, cryptids and other weird uh, entity sightings state by state by state. Uh, they're little bite-sized entries, uh, some great illustrations, but I like it because of those bite-sized entries. You can flip through it. You can find a story that has uh, some interesting points to it that you like, and then you can take what you know and kind of get on the internet and you have a little bit, a little bit of a thread to pull on and then you can start finding more and more about uh, said cryptid that you've decided to check into. So it's a good book, a good jumping off book for uh, things like that. And uh, this week, I just, I wanted to find a couple of unknown, maybe not, not unknown, obviously, or they wouldn't be in the book, but uh, lesser known uh, cryptids, lesser known monsters out there Find a couple of interesting ones with enough meat on their bones to create an episode. And I just kind of flipped through until I found some that I liked. And uh, it did not disappoint, especially this first one that we're going to talk about, which is the uh, the Billowack Monster in Santa Paula, California. Because it it was one of those where I read the entry. The entry read, led to me buying a book. And then uh, a really nice YouTube video on it led to another decent YouTube video on it. And uh, just a rabbit hole very quickly ensued. And that's exactly what I wanted with at least one of these stories. And so that is what we are on uh, tonight. The Billowack Monster and the Bladenboro Monster. So named because it was in Bladenboro. And uh, I'll get into the Billywack here in a little bit. And that is what I have planned for tonight. We also, of course, have some local news, and we will have uh, an interview, not really an interview, just an experience that was shared and talked about, and then a conversation ensued. Uh, I had Chris Coswell from the Mad Scientist podcast on uh, to talk about an experience, a story that he had about a town that he lived in for a little while. So we'll get into that at the end of the show, and uh, that is it. That is tonight's show. So let's uh let's move on and let's uh, start with uh, the Billowack monster of Santa Paula, California. If you like podcast and you like science come on baby listen to us oh my god is that good <laughs> yeah that was that was epic listen to the mad scientist podcast on all of your itunes and other listening things i'm your host chris cogswell here with my co-host marie mayhew and we sing we sing we sing a lot we sing for science yes we talk about science, we talk about history, we talk about ghosts and monsters and UFOs and things, and it's a lot of yeah. fun. So come learn about yes. ghosts and UFOs and physics and chemistry and a little bit of biology. And about economic collapse. On the Mad Scientist Podcast! Oh my god.
Before we get into tonight's topics, I want to take a minute and let you know that there is so much more small town secrets to enjoy. Check out the Patreon. There are one, two, and three dollar tiers of support with stuff like a shout out on the main show, exclusive buttons and stickers, MP3s to the music I create, also an ad slash promo free version of the main show as well as STS Backroads, the Patreon-only podcast that comes out in the off weeks, which means you'll get content every week, all in your own RSS feed. There is all of this and more. To sign up, go to patreon.com slash stscast or stscast.com and click on the support tab. And now, on with tonight's episode. The city of Santa Paula lies in Southern Ventura County in California. The small city is the self-proclaimed citrus capital of the world. But perhaps, just perhaps, there is something stalking through those orange groves. Something they call the Billowack Monster. The legend of the monster starts with the Billowack Dairy. The dairy was constructed after a man named August Rubel purchased the land in 1922. Rubel, or it might be Rubel, I think it's Rubel, Rubel proceeded to build a massive state-of-the-art dairy farm on the site, spending over a million dollars on its construction. And that would be edging close to $16 million in today's money, so a million dollars in 1922 money. Uh, he even ended up purchasing a famous bull named Prince Aggie from a nearby ranch for $100,000, once again, in 1922 cash. Rubel was a native of Zurich in Switzerland. He was educated at Harvard and obtained a degree in chemical engineering. He also spent time in the American Field Service, the AFS, uh, from 1917 to 1919, and that is essentially a, a program for volunteers to uh, help out with war efforts and military efforts, stuff like that. And I tell you all of this because it's going to come in uh, very handy. It's going to come important in just a little bit. Shortly after the dairy was completed, it opened its doors in around 1926. But just after that opening, uh, probably like six months or so, Prince Aggie died. And this, coupled with some other financial problems, caused Rubel to close the dairy farm. So, from what I can grasp, it wasn't around long. It was a very substantial uh, place, though, with a bunch of buildings, uh, you know, the creamery, the the dairy, the, like the, all the dairy barns, all of the ways, you know, everything. It was uh, a lot. It was a facility. <laughs> Let's put it that way. It was a facility to say least. In 1943, Rubel would join, he would rejoin the AFS and travel to Tanzania. While on duty there, an ambulance he was operating hit a German landmine, killing him. His remains were then buried in Tanzania. This would start many odd stories, both about the dairy and of August, August Rubel himself. It's suspected that Rubel was actually in the OSS, the Office 
of Strategic Services, the precursor to the CIA. So the OSS was around mainly during World War II, and then it was kind of dissolved and brought back as the Central Intelligence Agency. And so this sparked rumors that uh, the dairy was just really a front for government experiments. And this is where it really, like, took a turn. Like, I, you know, the cursory, like, glance of the Billowag monster mentions this, and, and uh, you go, oh, that's just a great backdrop for some urban legend. But really, we're going to get into it. There's a lot to, uh, to make of this. One of these dark experiments was that of creating a super soldier. And, as the legend goes, they succeeded somewhat. Four monstrous creatures were created in the bowels of the Billowak Dairy. They were described as half-man, half-goat, or Bigfoot-type creatures with long fur covering their bodies and what appeared to be ram horns on their head. Four of these creatures had been made, but when one escaped, the other three were destroyed. And since then, there have been reports of a strange howling in the area around the Billowak Dairy. Stories of a large, hairy creature throwing rocks at passing cars. And uh, to give you a really good idea, I, I do have like an artist rendition of it that's kind of nice, but a lot of people... Uh, refer to uh, the Wampus from Star Wars. Uh, the Wampus is the thing on Hoth that captures Luke. You know, that, that weird white Bigfoot-looking creature with the horns that come out. That is something people often point to as a, as a, an apt description of the Billowag monster, which almost makes me wonder, like... Because it would have been... I mean, it was in California. Like, did George Luke... Like, is that where he got, like... Or whomever made the creature design, were they inspired by this story? Kind of makes me uh, wonder. Don't know if I'll be able to find that out there or not. For years, sneaking onto the property was the pastime of local teens. Most went to just explore the rundown dairy and hopefully see the monster itself. One fearless boy, like back in the 60s, I believe, even ventured there to fight the monster with a sword. The property exchanged hands a few times over the 40s, into the 50s, and into the 60s, when, finally, the Held family bought it in the late 60s and owned it up until 2019. When the Helds got a hold of the property, they quickly tore down a rather ominous and spooky-looking building on the property, which was actually a 42 room hotel uh we're talking swimming pools we're talking movies no, no no that's a dumb reference we're talking swimming pools we're talking uh, an underground parking garage it was a a full-fledged hotel on this dairy and this uh resulted in a lot of trespassing to kind of cease and calm down i guess that was the big building the main building to go to I don't know if it was rumor that that's where the Billowag monster would uh, lurk was in was in this hotel, but it is it is strange, right, for there to be 
a massive hotel on a dairy, it does need to be asked, could these stories of government experiments be true? Well, there is some evidence and some speculation to support this. Mike Held, who sold the property in 2019, spent a lot of time there as a kid. He says that many of the buildings were overbuilt, quote unquote, and indeed uh, they are. Most, if not all of the buildings are made of reinforced concrete. The barns and the milking sheds all have full tiled basements. Howard Hughes leased the property, or at least a section of the property, in the 40s. He built a bunker there in order to test experimental ordnance that uh, that he was testing for the government. He must have had some sort of government contract for this stuff. And this has been confirmed by uh, some local residents and Mike Held himself. In the 50s, the old creamery building was leased by the DOD, the Department of Defense. And it was used to conduct research on the U-2 spy plane's infrared camera. So, as you can see, uh, there's a little bit there to substantiate the claims of uh, government experiments, military experiments, what have you. Uh, did they create a monstrous creature to uh, be trained as some sort of super soldier and then one got out? Remains to be seen. But, like, there is... So, I got into this. Like, I knew that there was, like... That's what sparked it for me. It was, like, government facility, Bigfoot-type creature. This, this story is gold. And then... Um, I start reading, you know, I read the little section in Chasing American Monsters, and it's like, it mentions a book, I go get the, I go, actually go grab that book on Kindle real quick so I can read through the chapter, and, and that just led to a lot of it, uh, had some really great information on it, but I ended up watching, uh, Ricky Rockets, yes, the drummer for Poison, his YouTube channel, he now does a lot of legend tripping stuff like that, and has done some really good videos, he had a pretty decent video on i'm linking it in the show notes the show notes <laughs> the show notes and uh the first one he just kind of goes there he can't get on the property uh there's some great drone footage going over like the buildings he doesn't you know peek in anyone's windows or anything but he goes over kind of the farm buildings and the property a little bit and he talks to someone that's been working there for a while and what they've seen and all of that and then then there's a second one which features pretty much Mike Held because he, like I said, Mike sold the property in 2019. He had some stuff that uh, he had like stored at his business. I believe he does something with props and like cars for movies by the looks of things. So he had stuff from like uh, the ranch that they all lived on. The thing about it, from what I can tell, is the dairy was one property, and then Rubel bought this ranch like 30 miles away. And that's kind of where he lived. He didn't, I don't think he lived on the dairy. Like, there's a house and stuff now on the dairy. But I think back in the day, it was just a facility to go to and uh, milk cows, in quotation marks. And then he lived somewhere else. So he had all this stuff. And, he's, and he just he had so much information about, like, all of this stuff. Like I said, about everything being overbuilt and and the hotel and all of this great stuff. Which leads me to think, like... This is where I'm going with it. 
I couldn't really find a lot of information. Like, I always wondered, like, where did Rubel get all this money? You know, uh, I mean, he, I mean, yeah, I'm sure maybe you had some patents back in the day. He was a chemical engineer. Maybe he made a boatload of money. I don't know. But to me, it just feels like maybe he was part of the OSS. And this whole thing from the very beginning was to uh, conduct some sort of experiment. And it was always government backed it was it was government money funds that bought the house that bought the dairy that bought the bowl um and they built this whole you know fully working dairy obviously but then underneath you've got these basements he says there were tunnels and stuff that connected the buildings uh underneath them all sorts of strange things like that and so the whole thing is just a government front paid for by the government rubel is there to maybe kind of run it oversee it they get there, you know, they spend a couple years building the dairy, doing experiments, and, you know, maybe, or maybe they just had that six months to a long year, year-long, like, experiment, and when it was over, they decided, you know, cover story, to kill the bull, uh, everything goes belly up, and then we get a rebel out of there. And, like, it, it, it was sold a while later, and it was another dairy for a little bit, and then... It kind of fell to the wayside. You know, someone bought in the 50s, but I don't think they really did anything with it. They wanted to turn it into an amusement park or so, they say. But I posit that it was always like a secret government place, uh, probably up until the end of the 50s, when it finally was just sold off to the held family. Because I think about all of that, and then I wonder about this hotel that was put on the grounds. 42-room uh, functioning hotel and I, I'm like why is that is it there for uh, military officials government officials to stay when visiting the research facility to me that makes a lot of sense uh, here over in Troy we have uh, a large Honda parts center which is a warehouse of Honda parts and now we have a second one but by that first one, it is built right by a big group of hotels. And there are always guys from Japan uh, at those hotels that have come to visit Honda for whatever reason. So for me, I think having this building, this this hotel room, makes sense in that area. Maybe it drew a little bit too much attention, though. So really, when you look at this, and I, like all that's in the show notes, and you kind of start digging it up, um, I remember I was watching this and I got a little bit into this, the first video and my DoorDash came and I paused it and I, you know, I went and I got it and I was coming back, da da da. And I was thinking to myself, you know what? The story of Rubel and the property is almost more interesting than the Billowack monster itself. And then when I sat down and started the video up again, probably not like a minute more into the video, uh, Ricky Rocket ends up saying that exact same thing. And uh, so I think I'm right. But let's not count out the Billowack monster quite yet. You see, to this day, people still hear strange noises that they can't quite explain as they travel up and down the Aliso Canyon Road, which is right, which is the road that leads you to the dairy. And uh, before I get done, before I wrap this one up, there is a story. So the other book that I bought that I was led to buy was called Ghost of Ventura County's 
Heritage Valley by Evie Yarborough. And uh, it's just, you know, it's got uh, each chapter is kind of a different story. And she has like a chapter and a half on the Billowack monster. Uh, she has one, you know, solely on the Billowack monster and the Billowack dairy and all sorts of stuff. And then the next chapter tells the story, um, which I think is kind of up in the air on how true it may be. Because it has first names, uh, there's no dates, uh, she says it happened in June. Like, I'm not saying she made it up, I'm saying the story might be more of an urban legendy type of ghost thing. But it happened in June, and the only other context clue I have for when it may have taken place was they had cell phones. So it wasn't that long ago, and it was about these three, these three women who went hiking you know, in the canyons up Elysio Canyon and all of that, and uh, were they were no, they didn't go hiking. I'm sorry, they went horseback riding, and uh, w one of them got away from them, and the other two saw the Billowack monster, and one of the horses reared, and she fell off and was injured and all of that, and then later, while in the hospital, she passed away, and then the story kind of smash cut to. Uh, one of her friends from high school kind of being haunted by her ghost for a little bit. Uh, the doors open and close. They hear knocking. No one's there. And then he finds, like, a pendant, a pendant that she used to have. And uh, it just it reeks of, like, of an urban legend of a ghost story, but with a modern flair on it. But, you know, that that's what the book has. That's the information in it. And uh, I, think, I think I might visit that again. It's kind of like the other one that I bought a while back just for the show, like, when I was researching. They'll both kind of, I think they'll come in handy later for uh, future episodes. And so, that's the story of the famed Billowack monster of Santa Paula. Uh, and really, like I said, the story of the Billowack Dairy and August Rubel, which I also might add real quick, a lot of people think that that death is suspicious as well. Like, they were volunteers, Remember? Like, they weren't on the front lines. Like, he, like, you know, a lot of people go, why would he have been in that situation if he was a volunteer? Also, if he went back to the AFS, like, in 1943, went back during World War II, chances are that he was probably, like, a, a higher officer than everyone else, or at least higher in the ranks of whatever you would call the people serving the AFS. So... A lot of people have speculated that there isn't a good reason for him to have been on an ambulance in the middle of it all to hit said German landmine. And then I always think that it's a little weird. Like, I know a lot of people from the war were just buried in Tanzania when they when they served there. But, like, you know, this guy built, you know, at the time, a million-dollar dairy farm. He bought a ranch fixed it up to live in. He bought a bull for a hundred thousand dollars. He had money, apparently. They had some sort of clout. Like it just seems to me that they weren't able to get his body back to the States. But then again it did hit a landmine, so maybe there wasn't a whole lot of a body to bring back to the United States. But uh, I'll leave it there. I'll leave my speculation there uh, about August Rappel and the and the Billowack monster. And let's move on now to our second story and the beast of Blade Burger. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. The little town of Bladenboro sits in Bladen County with a population just under 1,800. The town grew to prosperity after the Brigger brothers moved in the town and started a turpentine business, and then later got involved in the lumber business. There isn't too much to say about the town, unless you're speaking of the mysterious beast that has terrorized Bladenboro since the 1950s. It started on December 29, 1953, when a dog was killed by a quote-unquote sleek black creature about five foot long. Two days later, some residents of Bladenboro found their two dogs dead just outside of their kennels. And uh, here's a quote from uh, Johnny, I don't know how you say his last name, I want to say probably Vaz, and I think he was, I think his dad owned the, you know, his dad, it was their dogs that were killed. Uh, my dogs put up a good fight. There was blood all over the porch, big puddles of it. And there was a pool of saliva on the porch. It killed one dog at around 10.30 and left it lying there. My dad wrapped the dog up in a blanket, and that thing came back and got that dog, and no one's seen that dog since. 
At 1.30 in the morning, it came back and killed the other dog and took it off. We found them three days later in the hedgerow. The top of one of the dog's head was, heads was torn off and its body was crushed and wet, like it had been in that thing's mouth. The other dog's lower jaw was torn off. So that's a pretty apt description of what people uh, experienced whenever they found uh, remains of animals that this thing had caught, is that uh, they were crushed, they were torn to shreds, and the jaws were ripped off. And later, uh, a lot of blood draining apparently ensued. On January 1st, 1954, two more dogs were killed, and then another one on the 2nd, and then two more on the 3rd. An autopsy conducted on the two animals from the attack on the 3rd concluded that the dogs had been almost completely drained of blood, which might sound familiar. The creature was said to resemble that of a panther, or perhaps a bear, four to five feet long, and about 80 to 90 pounds, with feline-like features. It didn't take long for Police Chief Roy Fors to gather up about 10 or so of his officers and go on a hunt for the beast by the night of the third. And the next night, six or so young men concluded, conducted their own hunt. Then by January 7th, it was estimated that close to a thousand people were out in the woods hunting the beast. And uh, the reason for this is because sightings just kept coming. The beast was spotted by a man at a local gas station as it carried the carcass of a dog into the woods. A boy named Dalton North reported seeing the creature on the 6th and said that it made a noise like a crying baby. It was reported on the 5th that a woman named Mrs. Kinlaw was charged by the beast after she witnessed it kill seven dogs. Luckily, she let out a loud scream and the creature shot off into the nearby swamp. And I, I think that that is the story, that is the report that really got people into the woods hunting those beasts. Because after the fifth is when it really started to jump in numbers. And I think once it uh, attempted to attack a person, that's when it got real for a lot of people in the area. And by this time, newspapers had started giving names to the creature, such as the Bladenboro Vampire, the Bladenboro Banshee, which I kind of like because of the, the screams and noises that it made, and of course, the Beast of Bladenboro. Then, on January 8th, Mayor Woodrow Fussell called off the hunt unless the creature made another kill or was legitimately spotted. Safety concerns had popped up uh, that many people out in the woods. Eventually, someone is going to accidentally shoot someone else. So they called it off and they're, you know, unless, unless someone actually sees the thing or it legitimately comes and kills something else, uh, just don't go for it. It wouldn't be until January 13th that a farmer named Luther Davis shot a small bobcat he saw trying to escape a steel trap. The mayor quickly posed with Davis for a photo op and the papers ran that the beast had been killed. However, many weren't so sure as the bobcat that was killed seemed far too small. 
and only weighed 25 pounds. And uh, that doesn't seem to match up with the reports or any of the evidence that was gathered. And uh, I'm inclined to believe this. So I'll have it on the website when I get it updated and you know, all that. There is a, a famous picture from the paper of the mayor and Mr. Davis posing with this uh, cat. They're like holding it between them and uh, you know, like letting it dangle so that it looks very, very long and bigger than it actually is. And that, that photo's around, you can find that photo everywhere, but I found a better photo uh, from newspapers.com in another newspaper and I grabbed like a screenshot of it, a snippet of it. And uh, this picture is just Luther Davis with the bobcat and he's just kind of holding it up in front of him and kind of posing it as if though it was sitting. And it is much smaller than it looks in that famous picture. I mean, it looks about 25 pounds. It looks slightly bigger than uh, a fat house cat, which I can attest to. I know what a fat house cat looks like. And uh, so, no, I don't think that this thing was was the beast of Bladenboro, right? And to me, this whole story, is it's Jaws. It is exactly Jaws. It is this mysterious creature, comes into a sleepy town, uh, kills some stuff, hysteria ensues, right? You got all these hunters, just like in Jaws, out on the lake with dynamite and guns, probably, maybe, with all this stuff. And then once someone does finally get something, the mayor is very quick to be like, aha, we got it. Uh, beaches are open, or whatever, whatever Bladenboro has. And so to me, this is the story of Jaws, like complete with the mayor and the guy who caught the, you know, quote unquote creature in the paper. It's the same it's the same story. That being said, the killing and the hysteria over the beast did die down after Davis shot that bobcat. But later in the year, in nearby Lumberton, five pigs and three chickens were found torn to pieces and drained of blood on the AKM Biggs tenant farm. Later, a large dog was found and killed and once again was proclaimed to be the creature responsible for the killings. Like, let's not, let's all forget the fact that this thing is draining blood from these creatures in a chupacabra-like fashion. Uh, we're just gonna, we're just gonna shove that all to the wayside, even though we have evidence of it, and say that it's a dog or a tiny bobcat. Reports of the Beast of Bladenboro continue in the more recent times as well. In June of 2013, uh, it was reported that a dog and three horses were killed. The animals had large puncture wounds on their necks, uh, perhaps in order to drain blood from the animals. So all of this leads back to the question, was the beast a bobcat or a large dog, or is uh, something more sinister uh, still around the Bladenboro area. And uh, to answer my own question, I think that this one, this one seems to be a little more, I don't know, I feel like this could be, this is so Chupacabra-like in my eyes. Um, you go back and you look at that with that lens and uh, that's exactly what you get. Um, I don't think it was a 25-pound bobcat. I mean, I would think that... Uh, these dogs that were killed were probably 
pretty substantially sized dogs. Because, you know, they were they were farm dogs. They were out there to uh, hunt, to uh, probably wrangle up some cattle and herd cattle and things like that. So I'm not sure if a little 25-pound bobcat is going to be that much of a foe, especially, like, when there's a couple of dogs uh, in the mix. And then later, when you're weighing in pigs, mm -mm, no, not, not a large hog, no. And, like, in 2013, we're adding horses into the mix. I don't think bobcats, uh, 25 pounds or any size, can be contributed to the blade barrow beast. Because, uh, one, I think that's just, I don't think it's, I don't think it's large enough. I don't think it's powerful enough. And two, uh, they don't suck the blood uh, of their victims. And uh, we, like, it's there. An autopsy was conducted. You know, you can find news reports that say that they were drained of blood. Now, the original couple reports don't. Like, that, that, you know, that second report where the two dogs were killed, they talked about there being blood all over the place. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, you know, it maybe it bit off a little bit more than they could chew with the two dogs, and uh, there was more of a fight there than there was, like, a predator-prey situation. So, uh, who knows? But uh, I, I would like to keep an eye, maybe, on Bladenboro and see if anything... Uh, pops up ever again around the area and uh, if you're from that area and you've got a, a tail I'd like to hear about uh, your Bladenboro Beast tail as well but that is our stories for the night the Bladenboro Beast the Billowack Monster which is also a great name by the way but uh, let's take a little intermission here and uh, play some music I'm going to attempt to get another song another track out by the end of the season uh, just my mini keyboard has not quite caught up with the M1 mini yet, so it's it's still acting a little wonky, but I can do some guitar stuff. But right now, uh, we'll, we'll play some music, we'll take an intermission, everyone can take a break, and we'll come back with uh, your local headlines, everybody.
speaking of the Billowack monster, our first story is uh, from Australia, from uh, the ABC Gold Murray site. This is abc.net.au. This is written by Annie Brown and Sandra Moon. And the headline reads, The Meadow Valley Panther Sighting, lay the latest chapter in Victoria's Big Cat Legend. Amanda Dutton was driving home with her kids at about 4.30 p.m. on Saturday afternoon. This was written just four days ago. So it would have been last weekend. So 4.30 p.m. on a Saturday afternoon after a day of football at Mount Beauty, Victoria, when she got the fright of her life. She was heading down toward Mita Mita on a dirt track when she turned the corner and saw a large black cat jump off the road and into the bush. It would have been as high as our kitchen bench, Miss Dutton said. It was less than 20 meters away from us, and its tail would have been at least a meter long. You can call me crazy, but I know what I saw. A 2012 study by the Victorian government found that it was almost certainly feral cats being spotted in cases like these. But even so, the sighting gave Mrs. Dutton an awful fright. We had to pull up because we were so freaked out, she said. When we got to the Mitta Brewery, I told my friends what happened, and they laughed and said that it was the Mitta Panther. Mrs. Dunn's story of a possible big cat sighting is one among hundreds across Victoria. Brian Cherry from Bright told ABC Golden Murray's Sandra Moon that he saw a large black cat in Dartmouth in 2006. About 15 years ago, we were putting in a new transmission line for the power station, and a me and this young fella were doing some cleaning up work, Mr. Cherry said. This big black thing was coming down the track, and young Ben said it looked like a big dog, but it got within a hundred meters, and it was too big to be a dog. It definitely was a cat. I'm five foot five, and this thing was probably halfway between my knee and my hip height. It had a tail of about three feet long, which would be about a meter with big, heavy, broad shoulders. In 2012, the Victorian Department of Sustainability and Environment released a report that looked at the evidence at the presence of a wild population of big cats in the state. The report said that despite hundreds of sightings, testimonies were inconclusive without corroborating physical evidence. People were most likely seeing large, feral cats, the study said. The most Persimmonous explanation for many of the reported sightings is that they involved large, feral individuals of the domestic cat, Felis cactus, it said. The report also stated that multiple DNA samples would be needed to obtain unequivocal evidence of the presence of big cats in Victoria. But many commenters on the ABC Golden Mary Facebook page remain convinced that they had seen exotic predators in the Victorian wild. Comments flooded in about sites in Mitsumita, Stanley, Men's, Mansfield, Seymour, King Valley, Eora, Kiwa Valley, Mount Butler, Mount Sterling, and Bandina. Yes, I have seen one in Mansfield in the paddock behind my home, Kathleen wrote. I will go to my grave believing it was a panther. Uh, I have been ridiculed, but I know what I saw. Last year, a photographer in the Outways Range spotted a lodge cat and managed to take a photo. 
The sightings have even inspired a documentary by former Australian zookeeper who believes the animals could be traveling circus escapees or former military mascots. Miss Dutton, 38, who grew up on a dairy farm <laughs> in Meadow Valley, said she had never seen anything like it and had decided to speak up out of concern for people's safety. My family love hiking in the bushland in this area, and we have trekked up the hill at Mountain Creek before uh, with friends, she said. This is quite an alarming situation for our fellow hikers in our northeast Victorian era. David Waldron, who co-wrote a book exploring the origins of Big Cat sightings, said that there was absolutely nothing absurd about the idea. In the 19th century, there was very little control over exotic animals, and there was quite a thriving exotic animal trade with Big Cat cubs. Federation University scenery, senior history lecturer said, You can go through the old classifieds and you will find people selling them at pubs and certainly down at the docks in Melbourne and Sydney. But Dr. Walden said the memory could play tricks on people. So often what you see in the excitement of the moment can look quite different under the camera later. I've actually talked to people who have taken photos where they were sure they'd seen a big cat, and then we've shown the photos to me and uh, suddenly they were unsure. Also, it is entrenched folklore, nearly 200 years of big cat stories in Australia, so we've become prime to see them. Dr. Walden said that the first big cat sighting dated back to when Adeline was being established in 1836. Since then, there have been hundreds of sightings and blurry photographs, but the most compelling evidence came in 1996 when a leopard scat, when leopard scat was spotted near Winchelsea in Victoria. Mr. Walden encouraged people with accounts or footage to come forward. There is a legend up in Albury Wogana that someone got really good footage of a leopard in a tree eating a kangaroo, he said. If it's true, I would love to see that. However, until there is first-tier evidence, I remain a skeptic. And our second story is also a cryptid story, a uh, much more wet one. And this is from castanet.net, which I still feel should be called casta.net. I think they missed an opportunity there, but whatever. Uh, and this is a freaky Ogopogo sighting by Chelsea Prowry from May 13th of this year. Summer woman describes freaky sighting, which she believes was Ogopogo. It was so freaky. A Summerland woman says it might sound crazy, but she is convinced she saw the legendary creature this week in Okagon Lake. Andrea was on a hike in the hills above Crescent Beach in Summerland Monday morning when she caught her eye on the calm, deserted lake. I was overlooking the lake and I saw something thrashing or something in the water and I thought, what the heck, Andrea told Castanet. It was huge and it was black and it was moving pretty fast and it had a wake behind it. Ogopogo is, fab is a fabled aquatic creature said to inhabit the depths of Okanagan Lake. Dating back to its First Nations folklore, while numerous sightings have been reported, no definitive proof of its existence has ever been found. Andrea thinks she saw it firsthand. Whatever I saw, it was definitely aquatic. Whether it was a sturgeon or not, it was huge. It was really big, Andrea said. It moved so fast, I knew it wasn't a moose or anything. It submerged itself, then re-emerged, pulling a wake behind it and then it submerged itself again and disappeared. She estimates that she was 300 feet above the lake when she saw the animal. She pulled out her phone to grab a photo after staring in disbelief for a minute. It was a really beautiful, calm day. There was nothing, nothing on the way, nobody, no fishing boats. 
I saw birds die bomb this thing as well, she said. There was something weird going on. Well, Andrea can't be certain exactly what she saw. There is, there is one thing for sure. I definitely will not be jumping off a boat in the middle of the lake this summer. No freaking way. And there is uh, an intriguing picture connected to the article, but I, I'm not 100% sure if this is supposed to be the picture she took on her phone or if this is just like a picture that they have. It says photo contributed. So I think maybe it is from her phone, but they don't specifically say that. But, you know, Ogopogo sightings still happening today. And the last one is from Coast to Coast by the great Tim Banal. And this reads, Ghost photographed at the infamously haunted Waverly Hills Sanatorium. A woman visiting the infamously haunted Waverly Hills Sanatorium in Kentucky snapped a spooky photograph that appears to show an apparition lurking in the doorway. The eerie image was captured this past Sunday evening by Maggie Clark while she was participating in one of the site's popular ghost tours. As she was exploring the top floor of the building, she noticed a ball on the floor and hoped that she might catch the sight of the object moving, snapped a picture of the general area using the night mode setting on her camera. While she did not capture any motion from the toy, Clark wound up photographing something far more fantastic. In the odd image, a curious form can be seen right at the edge of the doorway, although it appears fairly nebulous at first. As one looks down towards the bottom of the anomaly, the distinct outline of a shoe-clad foot is readily apparent, suggesting that it is some kind of ghost. After Clark shared the picture on social media, she was met with a handful of skeptical observers who argued that the photo was doctored. However, she insists that this is not the case, telling us that posting a fake picture would serve me no purpose. She also noted that the anomaly only appeared in one image among a succession of pictures that she took in the moment. And what's your take on the puzzling image? And uh, link in the show notes, check it out. So it is done with night mode, probably on an iPhone. And I have used that before at night, like under a full moon. And if I showed you the pictures, you would think that it was taken like late afternoon. It is, there's so much light that it captures. So I'm not sure when this was taken. If it was on a ghost, like a, like a sanctioned ghost tour, it was probably taken at night. But when you look at it, uh, it is very bright. And you can see what it kind of looks like is when you try to take like a panoramic picture and then something moves and you get like this weird kind of blurry like image of it that might get in the focus as it goes. That's what it kind of looks like, but it isn't a panoramic picture at all. And you can very clearly see uh, this fuzzy image. And then as you look down towards the floor, there is a very clean image of a boot or a foot, like, you know, some sort of shoe, something like that. So it's a, it's a pretty intriguing picture. Uh, I like this one a lot, actually. So check it out for yourself. And that has been this episode's Local Headlines. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. And for this week's edition of Your Small Town Secrets, I got on on the old Skype with Chris Cogswell, the Mad Scientist podcast. He wanted to come on and tell about a town he used to live in called Claremont, New Hampshire, and uh, the very colorful local UFO author that used to live there, and uh, some of the stories surrounding that. And it just turned into a, a great conversation about all that stuff. And uh, then we talk about some super fun sites and you know all the weird stuff that you used to walk by when you were a kid that you weren't allowed to go to and just the mystery that ensnared. So fun conversation, not so much an interview really, but just come on to talk about some small town stuff. And uh, I'll take I'll let us take it from there from the interview and then I'll come back to finish out the show. Claremont has a special place in my heart because it is one of the parts of the country or one of the, one of the areas where really my wife and I, got to know each other really well. We spent a lot of time there when we went to college. And that's because her her family, and specifically her grandparents, owned a house, or still own a house, I should say, in Claremont on this, uh, you know, it's this beautiful, beautiful piece of land, amazing views of the mountains. It's just wonderful, you know? It's just a great area. And so the first time I was really introduced to, like, the weird part of Claremont or I guess the weird stories about Claremont or around Claremont were when was the first time that we went up there for a, uh, for Christmas vacations, like right after Christmas. So from like Christmas to new year's, I went up there with my then girlfriend, now wife's family. And so they uh-huh. in their living room had a, had a book, a self published book, from this guy, John Maloney. And I had never heard of him before, but the family knew that I was like into UFOs and ghosts and whatever. And so they were like, oh, you should totally read this book about this this guy. He lives down the hill from us. Uh, and he like claims, like him and his wife claim that she's like an alien starseed and that they've, you know, talked to aliens at the McDonald's down the road and they they call them down to speak with them and all this other stuff. <laughs> so I was like, oh, that's kind of weird. So I'll read this book, right? And we'll go through it, whatever. Yeah. The It turns it, out the, the UFO history of the area is like a lot deeper than that. So this guy Maloney was really writing and kind of getting involved in UFOs. Like he was involved in the beginning of modern day UFO research. He was there for like the he like he's he's basically a grandfather of UFO studies, but he's not talked about because in later years he went bonkers with his wife, uh, his like second wife who claimed again that she was like a star seed and all this other stuff. Yeah. But so this guy, though, like he was involved in like Project Blue Book. 
he worked with a lot of those key figures there, like Kehoe and these other people that were doing that kind of research. You know, some of the kind of psychic connections to alien stuff that him and his wife talk about are now coming back around to becoming more popular again. And, you know, it's it's kind of crazy. Like, if you read the Mothman prophecies, which yeah. is, you know, this famous UFO book and story, oh, yeah. it's really similar in a lot of ways to the story of this guy, John Maloney and his wife and the aliens that they would come to know, supposedly. Hmm. So it's this like it's just this fascinating, this fascinating town and this fascinating story. And so in grad school, so. <laughs> When I was in grad school, my last year, my wife moved to Minnesota to start her schooling and I had to finish my PhD. So I instead stuck around in New Hampshire and I was going to school in Boston. And so it's like a two hour drive, but it was free to live there, you know, on, on this house that they own. So I was like, well, I'll just live there. And when I was living there, I started the podcast. And one of the first stories I wanted to tell was about this guy, John Maloney and his wife. And they're like crazy, uh, they're crazy romp across the country. And as I was investigating, I found out like, so the guy that lived down the hill from them, from, from them, what I mean is the guy that lived down the hill from Katie's parents' house, him and his father or his father claimed back in like the 1960s, 1970s to have seen a UFO land in the field of the house in Claremont that now Katie's family owns hmm. and talking to like other people in the area, there evidently was like a, there was a mass sighting event that happened at a school in Claremont. Um, but there like, wasn't a lot of information on it and, and kind of this other stuff. But so, but Maloney had wrote this, you know, had written this self-published book. And so he talked about essentially he and his wife, met at kind of like a UFO convention. His second wife met at a UFO convention and she started getting, he claimed psychic or they both claimed, I guess I should say started getting like psychic premonitions from an alien. They thought, and the alien that they were getting these premonitions from kind of kept warning them that there was going to be a nuclear disaster in Vermont. And so that they had to go warn the person, they had to warn someone there about it. Okay. Yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah. Kind of, kind of, you know, that is, yeah, that is very Mothman y. The yeah. TNT factory is going to blow up. We have to tell Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's, 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 and actually at the time, at the time, stories like that were actually kind of common. Mm-hmm. There's like, like the Mothman prophecies likes to, the Mothman prophecies became kind of famous for this because of the movie and, and everything else. Yeah. But really it's like one of a dozen stories um, during the time period where aliens were like warning people, you know, like, Oh, the world's going to end, whatever, you know? Right. right, right yeah. And this one in New Hampshire in Claremont is kind of interesting or funny, I think, because this guy Maloney was already pretty well known to the government because he had been involved. Like he was a, he worked for the government um, before kind of retiring. He was involved in all kinds of interesting stuff in his history and uh, was kind of an agitator for like world peace. And so the FBI and the government already kind of knew of him 
and knew of his like his life and, and his weird lifestyle and whatever. And so when he claimed that there was going to be like a nuclear sabotage in the United States, mm. they took it like fairly seriously yeah, yeah. and started chasing him and his wife as they made trips back and forth to Sedona, Arizona. It to like re, me, you know, recharge their chakras or whatever. Yeah, it's making me think of um, of Randy Quaid and his <laughs> wife. And his wife. Remember when they were like, because you know Randy Quaid is is batshit crazy now. Yeah, yeah. And like they were, they were like, oh, they were like, we're on the run from the government. They're trying. To... It's, Dude, this like guy, of... this guy oh. straight up like lived lived the life. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. He had that lifestyle, and um. And what's so funny about it, too, is so the book itself is like the book itself is actually like really common in the well, it was really common. I think it's becoming less and less common. Do you know, as, what, do you know what the title? Of yeah, it's Alien Odyssey, A True Story. That sounds about right. It was published sense. in like 2002 or something. Oh, really? OK, I'm sitting here thinking it was like. No, he published like, it. He published it like at the end of his life. Yeah, oh, um, yeah, you did say that. That's right, yeah. Yeah, he published it towards the end of his life. But so it's it's funny, and every copy of it is signed by him, too, which which it, it's really, like, it's sweet and kind of funny, and, you know, it's it's one of these, it's just a, it's just a uh, amazing sort of story. And the there story... Is. Now, I think, you know, we put it in the podcast and talked about it, obviously, and everything else. Yeah. But I think. um, I think a lot of people. A lot of people don't realize the kind of UFO goldmine they might be sitting on with those self-published books. You know, because this is this is a story that never would have really gotten out there. And so since that since since, you know, reading the book and getting into it, I've now started collecting like self-published UFO books. Yeah, which are which are really fun. And like sometimes they're really good and sometimes they're just like, they're te- you know, they're terrible. Yeah. It's like, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. So that's that's the story, I guess, really, of Claremont, New Hampshire. And my uh, that's the quick the quick and dirty story of Claremont, New Hampshire. Yeah. So I found it. Wow. It is. It is the most self-published of self-published books. Yeah. I'm looking at a white cover with what appears to be an alien sitting on a stool in, like, a summer dress. And it says, Alien Odyssey, a true story by John M. Mulaney, $6.95. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Oh, man. On eBay right now, everyone, $65. That well, that's okay. Boy. That's and that's the crazy thing too is like copies of it have become now like rare. You yeah, know? like I, I just like, saw it I, on Amazon for a hundred and like I not even. Like, yeah, I have like three or four copies of it. You know, <laughs> because like I I just I love the story and like my if you go to Claremont, New Hampshire, if you're anywhere in like the Connecticut River Valley near Lebanon or Claremont or whatever, if you go to like antique stores, his books are all well, over there. Fine, yeah. Yeah, you know, because, again, this guy was self-publishing them. He put them out there. He gave them to, like, you know, my 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 grandmother-in-law got her copy from him. Um, <laughs> You know, he, like, gave right. it to her because they were neighbors. So it's this really fascinating story. And, you know, um, since publishing the episode, too, like, we, we went – so I was living in Claremont when I wrote and did the episode – 
and talk to people in the community who, you know, the UFO sightings in the area have continued um, the entire time. So, and I mean, and that's kind of true of any city in America. If you ask people, like, if you've seen a UFO, you're going to find people who've, who claim they've seen them. You know what I mean? But it was just such an interesting one because you, you also had this sort of link to town history. And, you know, as I'm researching for the book or as I'm researching the book for the episode and learning about these different areas, I can drive around town and see like, oh, there, you know, there's one part in the book where he talks about how one of the aliens would could like materialize or dematerialize at will. So it would it would like materialize for photos sometimes. And one of the stories is they had a guy, a photographer who was on this one kind of main drag in Claremont in the, in the center of town. And the, the photographer, you know, said he, he didn't believe this guy. He thought he was crazy, whatever. And then supposedly a ship came in the night and like, you know, lit up this guy's house and he saw it and he talked to the alien. And the next day he was like, I believe you. I believe you now. You know, so you could see like this area and be like, does this make any, you know, it's like down the street from like a pharmacy that's like 24 hours. You know, so it's an interesting, it's again, like right. a very interesting sort of story. Right, yeah, especially one when it's like right in town. Like we have one. I bet if I Google it, I won't even find it. Uh, a little bit north, there's a town called Saint Paris, Saint Paris UFO. And I remember like there is nothing on this, but like a picture. You know what I mean? Like sure, it is like a picture of a dude. I can't even like if I I I couldn't even find the picture today. Like I don't even know how I stumbled upon it in the first place. And it's just like a picture of a guy like on some side road somewhere and there's a UFO in the back. And it's, you know, it's probably taken in the late 50s, early 60s. But like, that's all I've ever had to go on. I guess one of these days I just need to drive my happy ass into St. Paris and be like, you ever heard about the UFO? You, you remember <laughs> the UFO? Like, you do a Google search, nothing. You can't like, you know what I mean? It's just, I don't know where I found it. Someone must have posted it on like Facebook back in the day or something but i've tried to look like locate stuff on it before and just nothing just a you know a desert of no information sure so you did this for your show that's why like what episode what was the name of the episode do you know so we can direct people to it if they really want to dig into what you guys talked about yeah so we had we actually we did it as a long we we do long form series of our shows yeah i see like Um, part one part two part three yeah so this one was i think one of the titles is john m baloney (laughs) i think it's what we called it because we are adults um (laughs) yeah um so the first episode was probably I think we called it Alien Odyssey, um, is what we called yeah. the series. So Alien Odyssey Part One, uh, which you can find on all your podcast players and things. Yeah. Um, but this guy, so you know, what's what I think is really interesting too is his story. His story, I think, in some ways, and like this part of New Hampshire too is pretty. Um, his part of this story. Um, is pretty tied to UFO history because it, again, like he was an initial member of like NICAP, right? An, an original MUFON investigator. He was, again, his connections to the area 
you know, include like, you know, obviously New Hampshire, if you think about New Hampshire and UFOs, you have like Betty and Barney Hill, the Exeter UFO uh, event, all these other things. And again, because his story is just a little bit weirder, it's a little bit more metaphysical, it's a little bit more out there. It's another area story in that same pedigree that just doesn't get the same kind of respect. You know, like people do not want to talk about this guy leading the <laughs> FBI on a goose chase with his alien hybrid wife in their camper. Right. So is that essentially what the book is about? Like, so the book. Like, what's so yeah, that? Yeah, give me a quick book, overview. So the book that. starts off. The book starts off talking about his kind of early life and his work for the government, um, and then his work as a, again, kind of like a champion for peace. And, you know, being involved in these kind of groups and things. And then it talks about him meeting his second wife. And then the book really starts off with, yeah, his 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 second wife getting these sorts of, you know, these nightmares and then these prophetic visions. And then her starting, like, she begins channeling, which is actually something really common in the UFO world. There's kind mm-hmm. of, so there's sort yeah. of like, there's different avenues of UFO world. So there's the sort of, you know, you know, the gut, the government needs to take this seriously, like the gritty reboot UFO world. And that's the kind of world we live in today. Mm -hmm. But there's also parts of UFO world that are a lot more kind of playful, you know, and a lot playful is the wrong word, like campy, I guess. Like, yeah, I'd give you campy. Yeah. Yeah, Like I think of UFO world, like the Batman films, right? Yeah. Today's UFO world is like, yeah. Ben Affleck, like Batman is serious thing, Uh Uh you know? But early ufology, and there's still parts of it, are like, you know, George Clooney with bat nipples. Mm, mm. John Maloney is Batman nipples. <laughs> you know, he's that, he's campy. Right. And a lot of people, it's not to their taste. It's not, it doesn't conform to their view of what this sort of phenomena or whatever you want to call it should be like. So his, interestingly, his story begins with his wife essentially getting like increasingly bad headaches and sort of like physical manifestations. And then she starts channeling in her like kind of nightmare fugue state, um, this alien. And she starts off with like, with, uh, she starts off with writing. Right. And that's something really common going back to like, like going automatic back automatic writing type of stuff or like, yeah, yeah. like automatic writing, you know, and, and this again, so uh, an interesting tidbit here, him and his wife were really involved with and the Minnesota or the the MUFON team at in New Hampshire at the time was really involved with like psychic kind of stuff, too. So all of this was like in the soup that him and his wife were kind of living in every day and their kind of cultural norms that they thought and believed and everything else. So she would start automatic writing. And at first it was really hard to do for her. And then eventually she supposedly gained control as the alien. They later found out who was possessing her, uh, was able to write and then eventually talk and like do things. And so one of the, one of the stories that again, my wife's grandma loves to tell is that the he, he claimed that his, he claimed that one of the easiest places for the UFO to kind of appear and become, you know, become physical or whatever was the McDonald's down 
the hill from their house. Oh, that's great. So this this alien really liked McDonald's. Apparently so. Yeah. And, you know, so that's kind of how the story begins is this alien shows up. And then finally, a, a large cast of alien characters will appear. Ooh. Yeah. And so they, you know, are telling them about, you know, oh, there's a there's like a. You know, there's like an intergalactic council that like there's bad aliens and good aliens. and The bad aliens are trying to like take humans energy and the good ones are trying to help us get to the next level of consciousness or whatever. You know, normal kind of hippie metaphysics UFO stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And that all sounds very familiar. Right. And eventually, you know, it it ends up with. Again, sort of this guy, his wife passes away. Um, before he does, and you know, it's it, it's kind of touching. It's like this is a book about a guy. You know, it's up on acid. You know, <laughs> this, is story, <laughs> yeah. this is a story of like an old guy who got to, you know, travel the country with his like crazy hippie girlfriend, and they got to have adventures together. And like, you know, the FBI is not super thrilled, but like, who cares if the adventures were real or not? Yeah, sometimes they don't. You know. Sometimes a good story is just a good story. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah. Sorry, I'm poking around on Google Maps. <laughs> checking out the checking out the McDonald's. I do see like like there's like a river and then like just across the river there appears just to be like a big field. Ah, uh, yeah. And, so yeah. the area in um <laughs> the huh. area on Google Maps that you can find it is if you just search like Claremont, New Hampshire, McDonald's. Uh huh. Right. Um, that is the McDonald's. It's been the same McDonald's this whole time. On Washington Street. <laughs> yep, on Washington Street. Well, I don't know. They might have had. They might have two McDonald's. You know. No. Yeah. No. It is. It is that one. <laughs> it's not a two McDonald's down. Is what you're telling me. And then him and his wife. Um, initially, they lived in a different part of town. They initially lived. Um, kind of near where. Uh, let me see here. Oh, there's a Hannaford supermarket across the street. Yeah, man, Hannaford's right. super good. <laughs> I, used to, I used to work for a Hobart in Way and Rap that makes scales. I used oh, to make man. the labels. And uh, so I know, like, every supermarket in the country, big and small. Like, you can't <laughs> surprise not... me with your local, your your regional supermarket. I know them sure. all. Sure. That's <laughs> funny. Yeah. Um, so him and his wife used to live kind of near Barnes Park. Okay. If you look on there, but now they've, you know, that that's where they initially kind of lived in that sort of area and then they moved and you know, so it's it's just a really interesting story and it's one too that I think the town itself doesn't really Like if 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 you go onto like a Claremont New Hampshire um Facebook group, mm-hmm. which is what I did to get the get more info on the story and everything, everyone in the town knows this story. Right. <laughs> like you know, it's like the, everyone yeah. is like, "Oh yeah, I know that crazy guy." You know, um, so it's really like it's a very fun. I just I just love it. I love it so much. Yeah. I, yeah. I love some of those old just wacky UFO stories. Like I have a book I got off eBay. I don't even remember why I bought it. It's just some UFO book from the 50s. And I found one like on the cheap because it didn't have the dust cover or anything. Like, it's still very readable. But like, you know, it's not I don't know collectible i just i don't even know 
Sure. I, yeah, I, and I, I was like, I bought yeah. it. I need to go back and read it. I think I bought it because I heard a story. I think Seth Breedlove told me. No. You know who that is? The guy that does like the Small Towns Monsters yes. documentaries. I, I think in... They did Flatwoods Monster. They did a doc on that. And there's like a, like a 30-second piece where they talk about this story about a guy, a farmer, who claimed that a UFO like land like crash in his field and it's buried out there you know i'm like <laughs> i'm like that's the dock you guys need to go down there and find that ufo or whatever <laughs> did end up bitter you know and i i think i got that book because i believe they talk about it in that book but i don't remember now i gotta go back and figure it out i bought it it showed up it got put on the back burner and now i'm like why did I spend sixteen dollars on this book? Right, I gotta go check this thing out. Yeah, what, what's going on here? Like, I'm gonna just sit here, just read it, be like, oh yes, that's what it was. Yeah, I love that. Is great. So, um, yeah, anything like anything else you want to add? Like, do you have any weird personal experiences that you'd like to share, or anything like that? Uh, you know, I've ne- so I grew up. I, I've never had like any kind of really weird personal experiences, I yeah. guess. I will say I grew up in Staten Island, New York, eh, gotcha. and like what? So um, there was that like there was a documentary that came out on Netflix that was like, oh my god, what was it called? Like Cropsy or something? Yeah, Cropsy and uh, yeah, that was a, that was those guys' first documentary. Yes, about um, Willowbrook, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Yep. I had never heard of the Cropsy one before. Uh-huh. Um, but I had, obviously I'd heard of and knew of Willowbrook right. and kind of the area and everything else and all that kind of stuff. But actually the thing, the thing that I remember, and maybe this was just like my generation in Staten Island, um, was the, the one that I, so Staten Island has a dump. That's right. like what we're the most famous for. If we're famous yeah, for anything, I, it's the even dump. I, yeah, I guess. Yeah. And today it's called the William T. Davis Wildlife Refuge, which is like great PR move. Yeah. You know, but when I was a kid, the dump was like, so I went to, um, if you look at a map of Staten Island, there's like Arthur Kill Road, which kind of goes from like the southern part of the island, like the very like southern tip almost of the island, all the way to uh, kind of the mid island, like where the mall is. And so Arthur Kill becomes Richmond Hill Road, um, which kind of cuts through this area called like the Green Belt. And so it's uh, like Lotteret Park and like Fresh Kills and these other kind of areas there. But so that like uh, imagine growing up in like a city because, you know, Staten Island was pretty Staten Island was pretty suburban, but you could walk everywhere, you know. Yeah. Like I used to, I used to every single day, uh, skateboard from like my mom's house, uh, like a mile, um, a mile away, two miles away to the local, uh, school to like play, um, and skateboard and stuff. Right. So like everything on this Island was very walkable. Everything was like urbanized. Like there wasn't, there was green space, but it wasn't, nothing was wild. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I get you. Yeah, like except for this area in the middle of the island randomly that had fences all around it with barbed wire on top 
and signs saying that there was like waste, like like toxic waste in the water there, and it was dangerous for people to walk over. Mm-hmm. And like it, it, that is ne- it is that has never been like explore, you know. But that was to me like the scariest thing. Like what was in that area, you know? So to me, growing up, like those sort of secret places or places where, you know, everything else was accessible, everything else was well known, except for this, like these patches of land that at nighttime you would drive by and they just, it like stunk and it was dark and it was scary. And it was like, you know, toxic. Like there were signs that said that it was, it was dangerous. Like these areas were so kind of close to where you normally lived. And to me, those were always the scariest and most fascinating parts of growing up where I grew up. Um, and so to me, like that's really the area or that's really the thing that I think is probably the most interesting. (laughs) Yeah. See, like that's the same thing. Like you were talking about Mothman. That's the same thing in Point Pleasant that, you know, that the TNT area and all that stuff around it that became like super polluted. It is now it's I mean, they don't call it a wildlife refuge, but it's the same thing, you know, yeah. and you hear tales of people going back there fishing and finding, you know, I remember th- there's so many Mothman docks, but there's one where this guy's like, you'd go back there fishing, you'd catch a bass and the bass would have like a tail that would just turn into like a point. You know, like uh. just weird mutated fish and stuff, and they they did the same thing. They they just like put a bandaid on it, let's plant a bunch of trees, and let's call it, you know, a wildlife preserve or yeah, whatever. Yeah, well, it's, but, it's so, it, dude, it's so it's like so scary too because you would be like some of these places, like some of these areas, I guess. You are in, in at one block. You are in. It just looks like it looks like Brooklyn. You know what I mean? You're just in like a normal city. It looks like any suburb, any any like yeah. suburban city yeah, you're or right, exurb right. outside of a major city. And then you walk down the road and suddenly you just hit a like a, an expanse of dead land <laughs> that has no markings or any information on it. And there are roads that kind of like go through it that you're not allowed on. And, you know, it's just like such a, it's such an interesting, I think, part of this island or this area. And again, it's like, you know, there are other parts of Staten Island or New York that have that same kind of feel to me. You know, there's um, there's like the boat graveyard, which I don't know if you've ever heard of before. No, but it sounds fascinating. So it's this <laughs> it's again like an area of it's an area of Staten Island that is just like dead. It's just like rusted old boats and water and like chemical tanks and pollution, (laughs) you know? And so as a kid, it was like, you know, that was the haunted area, right? The boat, Oh, you're going to go to the boat graveyard. You're going to go to the tank. So you're going to, you know, and it's, it's, it's literally like just this area of, of, uh, you know, Brooklyn, has something similar with like the Gowanus, you know, these areas that back in the day, yeah, isn't that, um, is that that canal thing? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. back in the day, the Gowanus was like this, like 
man, you know, ultra polluted, disgusting water. Like if you fell in, you were dead. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I've heard of that. And it's sort of an interesting, I think it's a hallmark or a throwback to a time when living in areas like New York City uh, were a lot more dangerous just because of like the threat of not even like the threat of people, like the people weren't dangerous. The city itself was dangerous. <laughs> you know, like the pollution from the people was yeah, what yeah. was dangerous. So, yeah, I, I just think like that to me is the most um, that to me is the most fascinating part of kind of cities or these little areas like this are these, you know, are these parts of the city that are inaccessible normally um, but are, you know, are inaccessible because they're dangerous, um, mm. because they're so, they're so wild and, and, uh, I don't know, un, uncared for. Yeah. Yeah. It is very weird where you're like one block, you're right. Like you look at it and one block is just everything. And then you go a block over and it's just, you know, just the desolate mound of grass. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like yeah. there were, yeah. you know, I, I remember as a kid, I so my, um, I went to like a weird, <laughs> I went to like a weird day camp as a kid that was at this, um, it was at this thing called the Fun Bubble. And so it was like this, it was like one of those places, like, I guess kind of like a Dave and, like a Chuck E. Cheese or like a, okay. a kid's or Dave like, and Buster's yeah, yeah, or whatever. Yeah. So it's kind of one of those areas. But from there, you could see the dump like clear you know you could totally see the dump yeah. clearly yeah you know and i remember that there were like you know you there were sleepovers at, at fun bubble right so that you could get like the normal camp experience i guess of like getting mononucleosis and one of the stories that was like that floated around the camp was like oh you know there was a kid who who wandered off into the uh into the dump and and, and was found dead you know it was never found and like that, you know, it reminds me of in it, the, the gray water, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. or this kind of area. It's, it's the same kind of feel I always got there. It was just very, or the, um, the, um, the po- yeah, the, the, what do they call it in that book? The pines or whatever. The, um, it's annoying me because in the new movies, they don't reference it at all. And I've forgotten what it is. Yes. <laughs> the Barons. The Barons. There think, we go. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the for Barons. some reason, the only thing that really bugged me about the new movie is that, like that was such a big part of the book, and it's like you guys say it like one time, and they never go there. They never, you know, like <laughs> right, yeah, but yeah, yeah, and then, yeah, because yeah, that's what the Barrens was supposed to be. Yeah, it was essentially like where the sewers overflowed into and all that. Yeah, yeah, and that yep. was definitely this area. So it was just <laughs> very, like, just very spooky and scary. Um, yeah. But yeah, really cool though. I don't know. It's and it's funny now looking at like when I go home, um, when I go home to like visit my mom or friends or whatever, and then driving, driving past the dump or these areas that used to again have those signs that were like, you know, don't don't walk through here, you're gonna get cancer. You know, <laughs> you see them today and it's just like a normal fence. You know. Yeah. Um, and it's like you know, there's nothing here. Um. Just such an interesting, just such an interesting difference there. Like today, like, you know, the area that used to have a sign on it that said basically like warning, do not enter, um, 
you know, polluted, polluted waters or whatever now is like a nice New York city parks, um, thing that says like, Hey, this come, come to the park. <laughs> yeah. Uh, makes me think like, I don't think they've ever done anything with it. Like love canal is still just like a, yeah, it's just a big plot of grass still. I'm waiting for that to happen. Like, are you, you are you familiar with Love Canal in Niagara? No. Um. So I did an actual episode on it actually, but like, it's up in Niagara. Like this dude, I don't remember all the specifics, but his plan was like, I'm gonna build the city of the future, right? Da 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 da. Just you know, try to get. And he wasn't like a con artist. He just didn't know what he was doing. Sure. And you know, he got some money, and he was the first thing was like, I have to build a canal to get water. You know to the city and he built it was called love canal and he built like i think he got like a hundred or so feet of it done before all his money ran out and it all went to crap and so like eventually you know he goes away whatever in the 40s it gets sold to some chemical company right who just dump chemicals in because it's an unfinished canal so basically it's just a big square lake now (laughs) and they just dump stuff in it and when they were done with it like after the war you know they covered it with dirt, sold it to the government. You know, the government bought it for like a dollar, and they built like a whole suburb on it. Schools, everything. So smash cut to the 70s, right? And like all the kids are getting sick. You know, everyone's backyards are bubbling up with weird pink chemicals. And, you know, and now today, like they had to tear it all down. They had to like encase it in clay, you know, to keep all of this stuff. And so now, like, if you go up to Niagara, you can go there, and it's just a big square field. Once again, chain link fence around it, and they can't do, like, anything with it. But, like, I'm waiting one of these days for it to be, like, you know, the Love Canal Memorial Baseball Diamonds or right, something. Right, yeah. Well, you know, it's it is it's so interesting. There are a lot of... There are a lot of areas in the United States that were once uh, government, you know, super fun sites. Yeah, it says right on here. I just looked it up again. Super, it's Love Canal, super fun site. Yeah, right. so that's yeah. the, that's the <laughs> same with this other area. And, you know, that was, I think, another part of it that was kind of scary as a kid was, you know, everyone I knew growing up. Um, I think this is true of most people now. But when I was a kid, there was a lot of fear around... Like, for, you know, first off, I grew up in New York during uh, during 9-11. So mm-hmm. that was already like a kind of a looming uh, constant fear and threat was like something like that could happen again or, you know, uh, but like the the cancer rates and the rates of things like, you know, uh, all of it seemed exploded when you're a kid. Right. All of it seemed, you know, super duper common. And. As a kid, it was always kind of linked to these areas because all you heard was these are toxic places or these are places that are dangerous to go in because you'll get cancer. You'll become, you know, you'll get radiated or whatever. And so it's really easy as a kid to, like, make those areas seem bigger than they are um, in reality. But now as an adult, you look back and you're like, holy crap, like, that's actually really that might be totally true. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, like yeah. the rates of cancer or the rates of like developmental uh, issues with children in 
these parts of the country that have these Superfund sites are like way higher, you know? So it's, it's almost scarier than, um, it's like our own version of it, you know, but it's not like a, it's not like a giant, whatever mega spider, you know, consciousness bending whatever it wants to be. thing yeah. or whatever. It's, um, it's just like shitty. It's just shitty people dumping garbage where they shouldn't. All right. All right. And that is an, a wrap on episode four of season six. And uh, if you have a story that you would like to share on the show, please visit stscast.com. At the bottom there of the main page, there's an email form to fill out, and you can send me uh, your story. You can send a newspaper story. We can get on Skype and talk about it. You can pre-record something if you want. But you want to hear it on the show, we can get on the show. That's the best way to do it. Uh, while you're there, please check out everything else on the site, show notes, pictures. Uh, there are links to support the show, such as merch and uh, Patreon is on there. And if you are on Patreon, this week on the Backwards episode, we are going to talk about uh, a couple of other uh, cryptids, the uh, rock, the slide rock bolter and the infamous El Reno Chicken Man. So that's what you have to look forward to if you're on Patreon, but all that stuff is on there. It's the hub for the show. You can get to that. Uh, if you also want to contact me via social media, you can do that as well. I'm on Twitter, most active on Twitter, but Twitter and Facebook both are at STScast, and Instagram is at STScast.gram. So feel free to engage with me on there. And uh, once again, just... I want to thank everyone for listening to the show and supporting the show in any way you can. If you like the show, please uh, get on your podcast app of choice, especially if it's iTunes or Apple Podcasts, I guess now I should probably start saying that. And uh, leaving a, a, a good rating, a good review, it helps the show float ever more towards the top and get it to more ears. And uh, also, just tell a friend. If uh, everyone gets one more person to listen, then the audience will automatically double. So once again, thanks for listening. Um, and that's it. That's this episode. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with uh, uh, the mid-season true crime episode. Going to do something a little bit different this season, but I think it'll be a good one nonetheless. So until then, remember, every town has a secret. What is yours?